I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11, to the text that is uh, known as the Triumphant Entry. Uh, It is a beautiful text. It's a challenging text. But it is indeed something I think that would be an encouragement to our hearts this morning. So if you just open to that. I want to put out two words to you. Well, I want to put one word out to you this morning. And I want you to think of what single word comes to mind in response to that word. Okay, so here's the word. Politician. Okay. My, the word that comes to my mind is disappointment. Disappointment. And that's not a partisan statement. That's just a fact. <clears throat> there is, for all of us, a frustration with human leaders. I'm sure people have been frustrated with me as one of the pastoral team members here at this church. There's abuse of power, misappropriation, scandal, capitalizing on crisis to promote agenda, accusation, counter-accusation, suit, counter-suit, and twisting of just about everything. I don't know about you, but when I think through that, and when I experience that which is daily, uh, I long for a king who is true and who is faithful and who, who has the ability to do all that he promises. This morning, we're going to look at this beautiful story that's called, we call it Palm Sunday, right? Some people call it the triumphant entry. The Bible doesn't call it that, but a lot of Bibles in the category of titles will put the next text that's coming is the triumphant entry, okay? Which is fascinating. When you work your way through it, it's fascinating to to look at it. At, at its essence, the thrust of this text is Jesus is a king that you can trust. Jesus is, I'll tighten it up, Jesus is the king that you can trust. And what this text is going to do as we just work our way through it is going to give us three reasons why we should absolutely and utterly trust Jesus Christ. Okay, so no matter what you're going through, this text aims to encourage you to trust in Jesus in a deeper and more life-changing way. The chronology of the text, if you look back at chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus is leaving Galilee in the north by the Sea of Galilee with his entourage of disciples and other pilgrims who are heading to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It's a festival that lasts typically seven to eight days in the land of Jerusalem. And the, the typical Jew would make this pilgrimage down to the temple for the purpose of ceremonial purification and for sacrifice. So 10-1, Jesus leaves with them. There's a crowd. We're in, as we move towards this, we're moving into the final week of his public ministry. 10-33 gives me the next step. It says, now they are going to Jerusalem. And Jesus, in his word, says, there the Son of Man will be betrayed, condemned, spit upon, mocked, beaten, and in three days will rise from the dead. Now, what Jesus is doing, he is upping the ante. All right, he is, he is making statements that if they don't come true, 
he will surely be utterly and completely discredited and untrustworthy. In 1046, you find now they've moved from the Sea of Galilee down to an area by the Dead Sea where there is a town called Jericho. There last week, Doug told us how blind Bartimaeus experienced a phenomenal healing from Jesus. And as a result, more people come into this entourage that is traveling with Christ. So you have all of these pilgrims doing their normal thing. And in the midst of that, you insert Jesus who is doing amazing things. And it all just starts to percolate. It starts to move. Uh, The Gospel of John tells us that the crowd that was in Jerusalem was talking amongst themselves. Do you think he's going to come to Jerusalem this Passover? This will be the third Passover that Jesus comes to Jerusalem for. And there's a buzz in the town. Do you think he'll be here? Is the miracle worker going to show up? The answer is a definitive yes. Because he says to his disciples this, Remember earlier, he says, my hour is not yet come. Mary, can't do that. My hour is not yet come. He hides away from the religious leaders who were seeking to condemn him. My hour is not yet come. Now, he says to his disciples, my hour, the purpose for my life, the capstone accomplishment, it's time for it now. The hour has come. So no longer does Jesus tell people to be quiet. Remember when he would heal them earlier in the gospel of Mark, he'd say, shh, shh. But now the secret is out. And when blind Bartimaeus is healed, he is unleashed. When Lazarus is raised, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, in this setting, there is a massive hopefulness that is, that is percolating up in this text that aims to change your life by encouraging you to trust in Jesus the King. So let's begin reading in verses 1 to, uh, I think we'll read through verse 6. This is, now they're approaching Jerusalem. So they leave Galilee, they come to Jericho, they leave Jericho to move towards Jerusalem. Okay, so you can see the progression that's taking place here. Jerusalem is the capital city. It's not another city. It's not a mere city. It is the capital of Jerusalem for the Jewish people, or the capital of Israel for the Jewish people. Let's begin reading in verse 11. Now they're coming. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is two miles from Jerusalem. Okay, so you're now getting to ground zero. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. A colt is a young horse or young donkey, for lack of a better way to describe it. It's a small, diminutive animal. You will find a colt there that no one has ever ridden on. Untie it and bring it here. If any ask you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. Well, they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And I I think to myself, if I was them, I mean, I've walked up to the doors of strangers many times. I have never done it in absolute comfort. When we first moved here, we knocked on every door in this community. 
and handed out a flyer. Say, hey, we're a new pastor, new pastor in town. We're starting a church. Love to have you come. I cannot tell you that I was ever comfortable when I knocked on the door of someone that I didn't know. I had no clue what was going to happen. One, guy, one time a guy answered with a rifle in his hand down on South Prospect Street. Don't tell Marie because that's... No. <laughs> it was down that way in proximity. I was like... <laughs> so... I was terrified. I, I imagine these disciples looking at the donkey and saying, is that the one? I think it is. He just told us to just take it. So they go over and they start untying the donkey and all of a sudden, hey, 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 that's my donkey. The Lord needs it. Okay. Okay. Fascinating degree of sovereignty. Some people standing there ask, hey, what are you doing? I'm tying that colt. They answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. And it must have been like he greased the skids. He, if you've never done rigging, you're probably wondering, what in the world does that mean? You put grease on wood to allow things to slide more smoothly to advance. Jesus has done advanced work. His sovereign purpose in this text is beautifully being revealed. And verse 7 then says, When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest. And with this, this, the triumphant entry of Jesus completes. So what do we, what do we learn from this text? Some people look at this text and think that the main point is, hey, if you have something and the master asks for it, Jesus asks for it, give it to him. Trust him. Okay? There's something of that in here, but that's not the purpose. That's something that's taught in many other places in scripture, not the thrust of this text. The thrust of this text is that Jesus is acting like the king that he is to confiscate personal property was the prerogative of a king in the ancient world. He's making a statement about who he is. He is the king who you can trust. There is in Jerusalem, as Jesus comes, this, this buzz. There is this percolating. And, and, and as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, you're going to find that it is, it is Passover. It's an expectant season. But it is also a, 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 a season in which the city swells to six times its normal population. So there is this hypersensitivity. This for them was Independence Day. This is when Israel as a nation would remember faithfully and repentantly before God that he brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is a remembrance of their emancipation and freedom given from the hand of God clearly. And so there is... Along with that, a lot of excitement. There also is the miracles of Jesus that surround this entry. Luke says the people were joyfully praising with loud voices. 
It says now in John 12, it says, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb continued to spread the word about all they had seen. And as a result, John says, many went out to see him. So this crowd coming out of the city to meet the coming Christ and the crowd that's with the coming of Christ merged together as he sits on this fold, this donkey, this colt, and proceeds towards the city of Jerusalem. And the crowd is hoping for something. They're hoping for an overthrow of the perverted system and of the Roman government. They want a righteous ruler. They are longing to be free from politicians and to have a king who is trustworthy and humble and serves. The crowd's response as Jesus progresses is fascinating. I want you to think about this. They take off their outer garments and lay them on the road. This was not asphalt. This was a dusty, dirty road in an arid climate where animals walked by and did what animals do. And the way you would honor a king... This was a normative type procession. The way you would honor a king is you would take off your outer garment, put it on the animal before the king to sit on a demonstration of your humility. Or you would go further and lay your own garments on the road to create what we would know today as the red carpet. So they lay down branches and clothing to make a highway for the king, a clear path to his rightful city. That's that's the thing that's percolating up here there is in this day of celebrating independence hope for another deliverance a greater deliverance and the enthronement of a greater king here's the question i want to ask and and let me just say this two things happen these are observations as you read through this that jump out he confiscates someone's donkey and he arranges a parade in his own honor Okay, think about that. Now, at one level, if you're newer to the faith, you're going to be like, sounds a little arrogant. Sounds like a politician. Sounds a little self-serving. Until you dig deeper into the text and realize something that is amazing and powerful. And by the way, the Pharisees, the religious establishment, are frying All their synapses are burning up. They absolutely get what's happening. And they are infuriated because he is pushing their hand and forcing them to a decision about who Jesus is. They perceive him as a threat to their popularity and to their power. Here's the question I want you to ask. Why is it that on this day, He does not come on a stallion like a normal king would or on a war horse in pomp and circumstance. You got to ask the question to this text. The answer is that as you read this account, if you are a literate Jew, meaning you know Old Testament scripture, you got a bell going off in your brain so loud that you can no longer ignore it. It's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Here's what Zechariah 9 says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
city, Zion, Jerusalem, they were, they were synonymous words for the same geographic place. Rejoice, city of Zion. Look, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey. I want you just to let that soak in for a minute. The king is coming, but he is not what you expect him to be. He is not riding a stallion, wielding a sword. He is riding a colt in humility to bear a sword. He doesn't come to wage war with instruments of war. He comes to wage war for you by the cross. He has made that abundantly clear. His disciples at one level should have been saying, everybody needs to calm down. You need to get some clarity and focus. We want to tell you why he's coming. They don't. Because they wanted a domesticated king who would come and do what they want him to do. Give them freedom, give them liberation. They were not completely sold on the idea of the cross. Just like me. Carry a cross, no thank you. Live the good life, yes. Enjoy my life, yes. Sacrifice for Jesus, no. But Jesus comes, and when he comes, he is the humble king that you can trust. Folks, this is a fascinating juxtaposition of themes. There's a song that was written by Graham Kendrick, Oh, What a Mystery, Meekness and Majesty. You know what we haven't had for a long time? We haven't had a meek leader. And when Jesus comes, it is the combination of meekness, humility on the coal, on, on, on the, on the foal of a donkey. But he is majesty because he walks a road that is paid for and fit for a king. From the crowd, he receives everything that he rightfully deserves. Not in its totality, but what they're saying. Hosanna in the highest, oh, save. These are fascinating words. Hosanna means save, we pray. It is, it is, a, it is a cry from a broken heart, from a needy heart that says, oh, God, save. There is recognition that he comes in the name of the Lord. That is to say, he is God's provision for broken, hurting people. He is coming in the kingdom of our father David, the first true God-given king for the nation of Israel. Jesus is then perceived as the son of David, as he rightfully is seen in his genealogies. He comes as a royal figure, but riding lowly. Hosanna, the text then says, in the highest. To the heights of the heavens, God, save. Our only hope is in you. Jesus in this is saying, I am your king, but I am not coming to rule. I am coming to die, to war with a cross, not with a sword, to bear your sin. Here's the sad truth. This text is quoting from Psalm 118, which is an enthronement praise psalm. The Old Testament Jewish people at the time of Christ Failed to make the connection to Isaiah 53. 
that the king comes to serve and to bear the sins of many. That Jesus has said that very clearly. You go back to Mark 10, it is unmistakable. Three times in a few chapters, he reaffirms, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be arrested. I will be condemned. They will flog me. I will be killed. Hopeless. But on the third day, I will rise again. And there is hope emerging. So the first truth that emerges from this text very powerfully, the king is humble. You can come to him. He comes to you. He comes in this text for you. The next truth I'd like us to see emerges in verse 12. And this is an interesting passage. I'm going to work through it. And you're going to see three things. You're going to see an olive tree. You're going to see the temple. And you're going to see the olive tree again. Okay? In the middle, Jesus is going to his house. The temple. Okay? So at the end of this triumphant entry, verse 11 says, Jesus entered Jerusalem. So this procession takes place. Interestingly, the religious establishment and the Roman political establishment is mom. They, they, not mom, they're, they're unresponsive. You, you would think that if Jesus is perceived as a threat, they would respond. But there is something about the majesty of Christ and the adulation of the crowd that holds people back. They're, Nervous about doing something. If you read John chapter 12 and 13, you'll see this nervousness building up. They're, they're not sure how to respond to a king that acts like this. Verse 11 tells us Jesus goes into the temple, but because it is late, he exits the temple and went out to Bethany with the 12, back two miles. Verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. And let me just give you this background. A fig tree in leaf in the early spring would be an indication that there may be nutritional value on that tree. Typically, that nutritional value was growing on the nodes that were left from the previous year. And those small, immature figs would produce some level of nourishment. Later in the fall, that tree would produce its full fruit. Okay, so it's important to understand that as you work through this. He sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf. That's a hopeful picture. So he went out to find out if it had any fruit. And there's something ominous about that in this context. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Okay. Now, here's the way I put it on my notes. He speaks to the tree like he created it. Next thing that he does, and, and interesting, interesting, you might want to mark this in your text. Jesus says, he curses the tree. He says to the tree, may no one ever eat from, fruit from you again. And Mark notes, the disciples heard him say it. Okay, so Mark's just like, we all understood what was said. Doesn't tell me if they understand the implications of it, but they all got the message, heard exactly what he himself had in fact said. The tree is cursed. 
because it gave all appearances and hope of fruitfulness, but it failed to produce benefit that it was designed to give. Okay, it's important that you remember that. This tree looked fruitful, but failed to produce any benefit that it was created to give. Second thing that happens in verse 15, it says, on reaching Jerusalem. So they're going from Bethany to Jerusalem, two miles. So it's probably a half hour walk. Tree in the middle. They come to Jerusalem, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. This was what most describe as the Gentile court. This is the place where all of the commerce of the temple in that day would take place. There are estimates uh, that there would be sold during this seven-day festival, people coming into the city, estimates that there would be sold during that time over 200,000 sheep would be bought for sacrifices. An amazing thought. So this Passover was a season of sacrifice, a season of repentance, a season of brokenness, and a season of hope because it was their independence day. Jesus enters the temple to make a point for all of us to see, and I hope you get this, on reaching Jerusalem, he entered the temple course. Now, here's what we know about the temple. It's ruled by the Pharisees, the constant critics of everybody but themselves. They had produced a system that was utterly exclusive. Folks, that's what religion always does. It always makes me better by what I do and that you either can't do or may in fact be unable to do. It divided people based on gender. It divided people based on race. It divided people based on social status. Always differentiating so that at the end of the day, the Pharisees were on top. And when you walked by, you would say, good day, sir. And they would puff with pride. And they are nothing. They are nothing but empty shells who give the appearance that they are beneficial when in fact they are detrimental. I hope you can make a connection back to the tree. When he went into the temple... He began driving out those who were buying and selling their meaning of the injustice that was present in his day. Jesus was saying enough, enough. And what I love is he comes into the city uncontested. He goes into the temple uncontested. I mean, this guy is creating mayhem in the temple He is flipping tables. He is chasing money changers out. They try to grab their stuff to leave. He says, not today. Not today. Get out of my house. Why, Jesus? Because you've made it a den of thieves. You've made it a place where people prosper on the message of the gospel on the message of hope through the sacrificial system that God had created to point forward to an ultimate independent person who would set you free through his work on the cross. And they were trashing the entire picture by making it a place where they made profit for personal benefit. 
Verse 16, he would not allow, allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he, as he taught them, he said, now listen, this is fascinating. He's obviously a little bit agitated. By the way, if you ever use this reference to the wrath or anger of Jesus as justification for your sinful anger, God help you. Because you would be justifying something that is utterly different than what's going on here. This is a holy, a pure, a righteous reaction to the abuse of others from a perfect king who sees all clearly. So don't make the mistake of saying, well, Jesus got angry. You don't understand this text if you think it justifies your poor, pitiful attitude towards your wife or your kids. You don't understand it. This is Jesus reacting to the abuse of others. And he steps up as a savior, as a redeemer, who is willing to set them free at the cost of his own life. Folks, everything Jesus is doing here is upping the ante, and eventually the axe will fall on him. He knows exactly what he is doing. He is in the pursuit of his father's will. He speaks to the tree like he created it. He enters the temple like he owns it. He does this to show that he is just. Folks, here's my take on this portion of the text. First, the king, hang on, I'm losing my word. The king is humble. He comes on a donkey. The king is just. He will not tolerate. He will not tolerate an abusive system that should give benefit, but instead produces chaos and guilt and fear in the life of others. His reaction, his response is clear and strong. Israel had been chosen by God to be a light for the nations. They had utterly failed to fulfill God's purpose, particularly the leadership. And instead they had turned the temple into a conduit for personal benefit at the expense of the impoverished. And God had serious issues with that. You can read through the Old Testament. You'll find this over and over and over again. God has a heart for justice that is rooted in his saving of you from your sin. Verse 15 and 16, the the actions that he takes single the end of this perverted religious system. He upset this exclusive system that restricted access to God. And I, I love what he says in, in verse 17 and 18, he's, he's casting a major level of shade over the religious system that was abusing people, that bore no benefit for those that it was intended to help. And I think that his being uncontested in this day affirms his absolute palpable authority. Nobody does anything. The religious leaders free. Folks, listen. In one week, they will have him on a cross. One week. On this day, not a peep. 
in the background, they are, in, they are infuriated. And they're trying to figure out what do you do with some with, with such a high level of popularity. And they come to the conclusion that it will be beneficial if one dies to save the nation. And that begins to be the inception of the end of the public life, but the beginning of the true ministry of Jesus. In verse 18, Jesus gives his justification for this outburst. Is it not written? What does he do? He appeals to scripture to give clear justification, true justification for what has just happened. And what does he say? He says, my house. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I just, when I read that going through that this week, I was like, whoa. My house, not yours. It's mine. My house will be called a house of prayer. That is to say, a place where sinners can find forgiveness and access into God's personal presence and enjoy relationship with him. And the religious establishment was blocking that conduit of God's grace. And that brings the response from Jesus. He says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Folks, I love this. I love this. This this includes us. Irregardless of your background morally, irregardless of your background nationally, irregardless of your background in any fashion, my house shall be a place where people gain access to God and find help from God. That's what prayer is. And it will be for all nations. The king that is exposed in this text is a king who is just You can trust him to make things right in your life. And then they leave the temple. And as they're going back to Bethany, guess what pops up? Well, what pops down is the tree. Verse 20, it says, I'm sorry, they went out of the city. The next morning, they went along the way and they saw the tree. And you can put this word over it in your text. And the fig tree entirely withered from the roots. The idea of dying from the roots means that there is no hope because no fresh sprouts can come when the roots have been utterly decimated. Rabbi, look, they say. The fig tree you cursed has withered. There's two things, I have two words written on my notes. There's a wow, like wow. He spoke to the tree like he created it and he controlled it. And there's a woe. There's a somber note that settles over this text for the religious system of Jerusalem. It's facing its demise. And Jesus has forecasted it in this text. And here's what I'm going to tell you. 37 years later, 70 A.D., a general named Titus from the country of Rome comes into Jerusalem and utterly decimates this building that Jesus cleansed. Because in spite of the fact that Jesus came, the text says the Jews did not, the religious establishment particularly, did not know their day of visitation, the day that could bring them peace. Luke 24, I think, or 
Luke 20 says, when Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem as he came on this day, it says he wept. He wept and he said, oh, Jerusalem, if you had known this, your day of visitation, that would bring you peace. How different the outcome for these people would be. There is this humble king who weeps and a just king who moves into action to do what is right for the glory of his people. I love the way it says it at the beginning of verse 20. It says, as they went along, they saw the fig tree wither from the woods, from the roots. I got the woots, the woe, and the wow. You get that? <laughs> That's alliteration, I think, actually. It says, Peter remembered what Jesus had said to them. You know, Peter's got a lot of negatives. But when he saw this tree, he goes, who would have thought? And he, he, in exclamation, Rabbi, look. As if Jesus doesn't know what happened. You go, there's humor wrapped up in this. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Folks, here's what I want to tell you the connection is. When Jesus overturned the, te- the tables in the temple, he was cursing the temple. He was saying, this broken Exclusive system is dead to me. And will find its fulfillment in the work of the Savior on Calvary's cross. Because the whole temple revolved around repeated sacrifices, blood being shed for the redemption of sins, right? And when Jesus comes on the scene, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And no longer will that system be needed. Because it has found everything that it anticipated and pointed to in a Savior. Who came and took your place on Calvary's cross. A humble king who is himself just and the one who can justify you. He's the one who can cleanse you of your sin and give you his righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? I just think it's funny that Peter thought he had to tell Jesus of the tree wither. Jesus is like, yeah, Peter, I saw that. I saw it before we got here. He's that sovereign. Jesus then launches into a very beautiful statement. He says to his disciples, he says, have faith in God. I think I trust God. I, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And you get a text from your daughter. And you are, you are rocked. Been down that road before. I just said, God, I trust you. I trust you. I don't like what's going on. I seriously dislike what's going on. But I trust you. Came here, got together with the worship team, prayed. And uh, praise God, she's moving in what seems to be a positive direction. 
Jesus says to his disciples, you saw that, you saw that, you saw that. Trust me. Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, and this is so beautiful, is truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, probably referring to the Mount of Olives, central to the teaching of Scripture, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it shall be done. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, remember the connection. The temple was the house of prayer. It was the place where you would go meet God and have your needs met. Whatever you ask for in prayer, in God's presence, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Don't be like the Pharisees, chippy and self-serving. Forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, this is a beautiful, beautiful text. Jesus begins with this exclamation. Disciples, you're going to face a lot harder task than going to get in a cult that doesn't belong to you. When I go to the cross, you're going to be severely tried. You're going to face mountainous struggles and difficulties and fears when I'm in the grave. But I am a God who moves mountains. Now, what are mountains? Mountains clearly in this text are another metaphor. They're another picture. The thing that you think can't move in the power of God can. That's the promise of this text. Okay, that God is capable, as he says in his word, of doing more than you would ever dare ask or think. Have faith in God. They're facing his crucifixion. They are troubled deeply every time he gives the list of what's going to happen and then says, in three days, I will rise again. They don't say, yeah, they had seen that happen. He gave them a foretaste of it in Lazarus. And people in the crowd are following because they saw his resurrection power. And the disciples have seen his power in many, many ways. And they're still struggling with having faith in God. Does that sound familiar? I, I, I thought to myself this morning, you can be so far down the road and still be learning this lesson. No matter what you're going through, Jesus exclaims to you, Trust God. I've watched Pop Raider this week. Trusting God. Clinging to Jesus. Praying. I, I would walk in the house. And he's in the other room. I hear him talking. I said, Dave, who is he talking to? He said, he's praying. He said, he prays through the list of names that he's prayed through for years because he trusts God. In his final breath, redeeming the time. Trusting God, clinging to Jesus, praying to the end for others, asking how other people are doing with his final breath. That's faith in God. My clarification on this text would simply be this. This text does not domesticate God. It does not make God your call boy. It does not make God your genie 
where if you say it in the right tone, with the right volume, with the right words, you're going to get whatever you want. It's not what it's talking about. This text is not saying that, you know, freedom from suffering and prosperity are the right of every Christian at all times. It's not saying that. The Bible clearly does not teach that. That's why in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I asked God three times, fervently, I have to assume, take this from me. God said, you're better with it. Paul said, I'm good. I'm good. That's a mountain that God did not want to take out of Paul's life because he had a purpose that Paul willingly yielded to. So don't take this text and, 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 and say that if you just say the right thing in the most positive way, you'll always get what you want. That is to bastardize this text. It is to severely abuse it. And it is used in that way in many, many cases. Rather, this text, in context... Disciples facing a mountain, but it is the will of God. And Jesus says to them, you can get over that mountain. God can make a way around that mountain so that even in that dark moment of my death, trust God. Have faith in God. Cry out to God. And he will see that you have everything you need to do his will. Jesus went to the garden, didn't he? And he illustrated this truth. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, Jesus, if you just had a little more faith, he would have taken it away. That ruins this text. His final prayer in faith is, nevertheless, not what I want, but through my life, what you want. That's power. Folks, Jesus, God in flesh, had to go into the garden to, in prayer and in faith, find what he needed, the strength he needed to move through that circumstance for our saving, for our forgiveness, and for our glory. Don't allow the abuses of faith to justify weak faith, small plans, and paralyzing fear in your life. Jesus, the king, is honored when you trust him. It's the same thing I feel when my kids call me today. My adult children call, like this morning, Dad, this. I am honored that they believe that I can help by knowing. God can do a whole lot more than that. And this text is calling us to to not abandon the theme of faith because some people may abuse it. He is honored by deep faith and total personal trust in him. Remember what the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God. It's impossible to do the will of God if you are not walking in trust in him. But when you walk in trust in him, you will find mountain-moving faith. Man, I think 20 years ago, Dan Slack came forward at the end. Dan's sitting right back there. I don't know, you're in the second or third row, but he's the big guy there. I met Dan Slack, I think 22 years ago, 20 years ago, on Easter Sunday, Dan Slack walked up to me. After the service, I had known him for two years, and I thought, this dude is never going to come to Jesus. We talked and talked. I don't think I can be good enough. Man, I'm 
pretty darn sure you can't be good. I've known you for two years. And that day, Dan walked up to the service and he said, I want to trust Christ. Dave Dietrich said to me a little later that day, because Dave was a lifelong friend of Dan's, he said, God still moves mountains. And I think Dave understood exactly what this text is saying. Have faith in God. Because he can change the things that you think can never change. You know, when I was a kid, I learned a song. I'm not going to sing it. Ed Quinos looked at me. He's one of our elders. He's like, no, I'll fire you. I won't sing it. I'm so tempted to. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. Folks, you may need to sing that to yourself. You know, I said to Diana Kelly this morning, because she's an ER nurse by trade, I said to her, I said, Diana, we were just sharing a little bit about what was going on with Beck and her struggles. And I said, Diana, I have a problem. And C.J. Mahaney said it very clearly and very well. He says, you tend to listen to yourself more than you speak to yourself. I don't know about you, but when I listen to myself, I am racked with fear, doubt, inadequacy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I need to do? I need to speak to myself. The king is humble. The king is just. And the king is worthy of my trust. He comes in as a king. He's not received as a king. But it's a triumphant entry because at the end of this, he's going to a cross where he will conquer my sin and set me free by his grace And for his glory, I want to ask you this morning as we close, what difficult circumstance, what mountain of injustice at work in your family do you need to place in his just hands by faith today? What's the circumstance that is just tearing you up? And Jesus whispers to you in your self-doubt, he speaks to you, have Faith in God. Trust God. He will not let you face a circumstance that you and he are not capable of facing. Trust him. Maybe this morning you're a seeker. Maybe you're hostile. Maybe you're ambivalent. I don't know. Jesus comes humble to fight for you. Not by wielding a sword, but by taking the sword for you not to smite, but to be smitten. He triumphs by the cross so that at the end of this account, the Pharisees and every one of us is faced with the decision. And Tim Keller put it this way. He said, you either have to crown him or kill him. Just let that settle in. You either have to say, I surrender or I want nothing to do with you. Jesus, this is a checkmate moment. The Pharisees now have the ball in their court. 
What will you do with Jesus, Pharisee? Here's what I know. Some of them believed in him. John 12 tells me that, and that is beautiful. But the majority did not. And the fickle crowd that did not want a redeemer, they wanted political independence. That fickle crowd, seven days later, will say, crucify him. We don't want a wimp as a king. We don't want someone who will not exercise this absolute total authority for our benefit. It's the danger of using prayer to get what you want from God. You slip into a dangerous category where you de-God God. They wanted a God they could domesticate and control who would give them everything they desired and asked for, who would solve all of their problems, heal all of their pains, take away all their sorrows. Not a humble king who rides on a donkey. Not a humble king who wars through a cross and takes a sword. But to those who believe, he is precious. And he is most precious and lovely on the cross where the lion of the tribe of Judah, the rightful king, becomes the lamb of God who willingly surrenders his life. In fact, he orchestrates his demise every step of the way. So that at the end of the day, everyone who believes would be a person who radically and prayerfully clings by faith to Jesus. Because I need his help every moment of every day. I just don't realize it. He comes as a king in power. He comes in humility. He comes in justice. And he is honored when you cry out to him and say, Jesus, in this moment that I resent, that I hate, I trust you. And I'm going to ask you to keep me safe and secure and glorifying you in whatever you allow to come into my life. You cannot end this account and say, huh, what an interesting guy. C.S. Lewis said after this text, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, who is he to you today? It makes an eternal difference. Do you see him as someone you can manipulate, a genie for your personal benefit and prosperity and good life now? God help you. God help you. I'm not saying life can't be good. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying God can't do amazing things he does. But he is honored in good and bad circumstances in my life. He is magnified. Through the pain of the cross, the lamb suffers. In resurrection, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who shows up in the book of Revelation standing as if having been slain. Because on the third day, you know what he did? He fulfilled his promise. And he stunned the disciples. And he shocked the world. And he made it clear that his work on the cross is saving. That his shed blood is forgiving for all who come to him in simple faith, believing. God, this morning I ask as we sing our closing song, 
that you will give us a fresh capacity based on this text to trust the humble king who is just. God, help us to trust you above all things. And help us today, God, to be believers that by faith cling to Christ. If someone here this morning, Lord, doesn't know you, I pray that even as we sing, you might encourage them this morning to acknowledge their sin and trust the Savior who shed his blood for their saving. May they pursue what he pursued for them, hope and true freedom and independence. I pray that that blessing will occur in the beautiful, powerful, glorious, praiseworthy, trustworthy name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Let's sing this song.